Jets fans, I am Glenn Naughton, radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going on the air a little bit early tonight. We are going to be joined in a little while by Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News to talk about the goings-on at Florham Park, get his take on quarterback Sam Darnold and his performance through the first three games of the season. We're going to talk a little bit about Todd Bowles because, as, as uh, many of you know, He's, he's under the microscope at the moment. Some are using the term hot seat, which whether or not that's premature, you do. but uh, he, is, he is the head coach of a team that is one and two right now. And you could make a viable case that, uh, that he, his team gave a couple games away. And most recently, the Jets found a way to drop another game after uh, – Dropping a Monday night game to Miami Dolphins, or sorry, a Sunday game to the Dolphins. They uh, they turn around on Thursday, and um, they drop one to the Cleveland Browns, who hadn't won a game in what was it, 635 days? Like that. And listen, everybody know if you don't know this, any anybody who follows what's really going on and you know has even the slightest idea, this this isn't your your same old Browns team. This isn't a typical Browns team. I I picked the Jets to lose this game uh, last week. And as is often the case, and this is why, you know, we, I say this all the time, and I've, I've heard other people say it, and I really believe it's true. And when you say things like, how many games does Todd Bowles have to win? Or anyone, any head coach, how many games does Todd win, you know, to, to save his job? How many, you know, can they miss the playoffs, this, that, and the other thing? And I always say, it, it comes down to how you lose those games sometimes. If you go out there and it's a back and forth game, or if you're, you know, if a team is clearly much better than you and you stay competitive, no, there's no moral victories. I get that, but at the same time, an owner has to sit back and say, is this coach getting the most out of what we've given him to work with? And when you look at Todd Bowles, as far as I'm concerned, um, that's not the case right now. This team was easily good enough to beat Miami, and was definitely good enough to beat Cleveland, and um, that didn't happen. You know, it's it's a it's a surprising. It was you're up fourteen nothing against the Browns. You're you're battering Tyrod Taylor. The Browns have to go to um, Baker Mayfield make his NFL debut. And what do we always hear? You know, we we talked about this when we uh, discussed Darnold early in the year. Oh, rookie quarterback. The first time a rookie gets into a game, it's first time he's the NFL level, and it's going to be different. He's going to be frazzled and. Baker Mayfield didn't look the least bit bothered by anything the Jets were throwing at him. And the Jets did keep blitzing him. I'm not criticizing Todd Bowles for that. I've seen a lot of people say, why did we stop blitzing? And that really wasn't the case. Did they blitz as much? No. But by my count, and maybe I'm off by one or two, I counted 11 blitzes um, for Baker Mayfield, who played the last couple snaps of the first half. 
Tyrod Taylor, I think I counted 14. So they did blitz Tyrod Taylor a little bit more. But I think as they were blitzing Baker Mayfield and as that defense was getting gassed and they were seeing how quickly the ball was coming out, I think they dialed it back a little bit. So saying they stopped blitzing, false. Not the case at all. Problem was they weren't getting home. They weren't getting there. No hits, no hurries. That was one sack, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Jordan Jenkins. Jets is a bad break there. Jordan Jenkins gets the strip sack. Cleveland picks it up. Um, so, you know, some as is the case with any game, some some big-time game-changing moments. But the story after the game, of course, was the the lack of discipline. Again, Todd Bowles, this goes back to what, what, you know, what I've discussed a million times when, when we talk about draft prospects. When you draft a guy who's supposed to be able to do, you know, at least one thing really well, you know, you, you don't expect a young rookie to come in and just be great at everything right off the bat. But, again, you know, I use Vernon Golston as the example, and that's why I had a feeling early on he was going to be a bust because you drafted the guy. You knew he was raw. You knew there was going to be uh, some growing pains converting, you know, from or going from college to the pros, moving to outside linebacker. So you figure there's going to be some hiccups. But then the one thing Vernon Golston was supposed to be at, be good at was, was – and not only could, you, could he not get to the quarterback, I don't think I ever had a pressure. So what is, what, why does this matter with Todd Bowles? Well, Todd Bowles, one of the biggest reasons he was hired – was because he was supposed to hard supposed to be a you know old school hardcore disciplinarian, the guy who was gonna you know bring some discipline to the locker room, clean up the culture. And now now you got Isaiah Crowell going out there scoring a touchdown, and, and wiping his ass with throwing it into the crowd. You got unsportsmanlike penalties, unsportsmanlike conduct. You know, and it, it, people say, oh, it doesn't matter. It only cost him a yard. It didn't cost him any points. It, but it's the big picture. It's the, and listen, Todd Bowles came out and he said this week that he feels like penalties are on the players. And when it comes to on-field stuff, I 100% agree. These are grown men. Even if, if you're a rookie, if this is your first year in the NFL, you playing this game for 10 years. And even if you want to give a guy a little slack, oh, rookie mistakes, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But, but you've still been playing the game for a decade plus. You know you're not supposed to hold. You know you're not supposed to interfere. You know you're not supposed to move until the ball is snapped if you're in the trenches. You know these things. Todd Bowles can't make a guy not jump off sides. It's an emotional game. Guys get frazzled. Maybe the crowd noise. You can't hear the snap. The snap practice. There's a litany of factors that can go into to penalties. You know, people point to the Patriots. And, they, and listen, the Patriots are rarely a, a, a heavily penalized team. But you, got, you go back a few years, I think 2015, three, four years ago, they were 27th in the league in penalties. Only a handful of teams had more penalties than the Patriots. Did Bill Belichick just forget how to coach that year? Did, he not, did, he, did they not talk about discipline that season? Bill Belichick did the same thing he does every year, but he can't force grown men to not do things like that. But that's the on-field stuff. When it comes to to taunting and ass-wiping and stuff that goes on outside the white lines, 
or after the whistle, that's on Todd Bowles. Because, no, he can't stop Isaiah Crowell from doing what he did. But Isaiah Crowell has to feel like it's okay for him. And there won't, re- there won't be any retribution, any repercussions, any discipline. He has to feel like, well, I can do this because it, you know I'm going to get away with it. And if, if you saw, did you see Isaiah Crowell's post-game interview in the locker room? Are you kidding me? And this is after... Todd Balls talked to him. The guy was grinning from ear to ear. You would have thought to ask him about his new $500 million contract. He couldn't have looked any happier with himself for what he did out there. Disciplinarian, right? Todd Balls is going to right the ship. Guys are going to get their act together. And it, it hasn't happened. How, how, how many times did Muhammad Wilkerson have to be late for practice and before he was penalized? So, Muhammad Wilkerson, we know, it, it's well documented now. Missed multiple practices, late to multiple practices. Before Todd Bowles finally, what did he do? He benched him and Sheldon for a, a series, I think it was, in Miami. And then let it go on for another year, however long, before he finally last year. So he basically let the guy act up for nearly two full seasons before he finally did something. I don't know how anyone can look at that objectively. And say that Todd Bowles is holding anybody accountable. Oh, but you don't know what's going on in the locker room. You don't know. He, he could be chewing guys out. He could be finding people. Oh, he could be, but it's not working. See some guys. How many times? And, and I've, I've defended the Buster Screen thing. I, you know, I've, I've talked many times about that there's just the cornerback position is one where there is not a lot of depth in the NFL. I mean, look around the league. Quarterbacks are frequently completing 65% of their passes with insane off-the-chart touchdown and interception ratios. The game is built and designed right now to favor offenses, and it, it seems like every couple of years there's a new way to give the offense an advantage. So I understand, you know, Buster Screen, he's inconsistent. He has some standout games, then he'll look terrible for a few weeks, but it's then. Those times when we see multiple penalties out of him, where he gets beat multiple times, no matter how many flags, no matter how many big catches, when he's having one of his one of his bad days, we, we don't see him we don't see him sent to the bench. He just keeps getting trotted out there. And it's 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 just year four, folks. Year four. And you know, since starting off ten and five as a head coach. Before before losing that Week 17 game in Buffalo, Todd Bowles loses that Week 17 game. Then he goes five and eleven. Then he goes five and eleven, and now he's one and two. I I don't I don't see how he's not on the hot seat at this point. And Mike McCagnan, he 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 can't be far behind. Okay. 
Because as much as I have defended Mike McCagnan, and I have, and I do feel that Mike McCagnan has done a better job putting a roster together than Todd Bowles has done of coaching a roster. You can at least look at Mike McCagnan and you can point to a lot of things he's done that have been very beneficial for the organization. But Sam Darnold and Jamal Adams, the start he's off to, it looks like he's going to build on year one. He's going to be even better in year two. He's making some plays. He's doing some things that difference makers do. And that's what you got to get. So you got Darnold. You got Adams. Darren Lee, it's early this year. Let's not get too crazy, but you cannot deny. I mean, if you have an agenda, if you're, you know, if what they are, you can deny it. But there's no way you can be fair and objective and not say that Darren Lee, through the first few weeks of the season, has played his best football as a pro. Leonard Williams, that's a whole other story. Nothing on the stat sheet this week. But that, that brings me back to Bowles, to be honest. You look at the names Todd Bowles has had since arriving on the D-line. Just look at the big three. Leo, Mo Wilkerson. How many of those guys got better under Todd Bowles, and how many of them got worse? Sheldon Richardson, Mo Wilkerson, Leonard Williams, all of them in their first one, two, three years in the league, they all look like they were bound for, for, for greatness, for Pro Bowl-type careers. Leonard Williams had seven sacks in his second season. He's now got six and a half in his last 30-plus games. Non-factor against the pass. And I get that he's a 3-4-D. I'm not saying he's got to be J.J. Watt. I'm not saying why isn't Leonard Williams getting 30 sacks a year, 20 sacks a year, 15 sacks a year. But can we get nine or ten? Can we get eight? Eight sacks a year. Is that too much for a guy who was supposed to be the best player in the draft when he came out and had seven in year two. So almost every stud D lineman we've seen has gotten worse under Todd Bowles, with the exception of uh, one of my favorite guys, who I always give tons of credit to, and rightfully so, Steve McClendon, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the top-rated defensive player on the Jets per pro football focus. So, as I always say with, with PFF stuff, take that for what you will. Some people love them. Some people hate them. I like them. I think they are a, a very useful resource. But anyway, that, that's where we're at. Todd Bowles, Jets are one and two. Defense blew another big lead. They did it a few times last year. Now we see it on the road against Cleveland. As I said, I get it. It's an improved Cleveland team. I'm not, I'm not going to argue that with you. But the fact that this team is sitting at 1-2 and two with the Jacksonville Jaguars coming up next, that's just that, – that's no good. For, for as much as this offense is sputtering, they, they struggled against Cleveland. And let's – you know, let, let's talk about that a little bit. We're, we're going to actually – what we'll do, we'll touch on that after we talk with Manish, who uh, Manish is going to be joining us. Looks like he's calling in now. Manish Mehta, uh, Jets beat writer for the New York Daily News. Uh, we're going to talk some football stuff and a little bit of uh, off-field news that, uh, or aw- away from football, some news that Manish has been making lately. Manish, are you there? Hey, guys. How are you? 
Oh, thanks so much for taking the time to call in tonight. Um, lots going on in the world of the Jets. Um, but let's start off, though, um, because this is some, something went down last week that people are still talking about quite a bit. And um, just wanted to get your side or your, your breakdown of this, this sort of back-and-forth Twitter feud with former Jets linebacker Bart Scott, where it seems that um, he, he's taken issue with some comments you've made regarding his opinion of the uh, the current state of the team. So what, what exactly is going on there? Uh, well, you know, I can say this. I know that the Jets don't respect Bart Scott uh, just based off of, uh, you know, what I've gathered talking to people in the building. It's a little bit odd in that he did play football, and uh, a lot of his analysis has been, uh, or I should say, you know, virtually all of his analysis has been incorrect. Uh, and that's not just my opinion. It's uh, based on conversations I've had with people in the organization who know a lot more about football than Bart Scott or me, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, look, he's paid to give his opinion. Everyone, of course, is entitled to their opinion. But when you have an analysis that's so, you know, laughably incorrect and off base, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, I felt compelled, I guess, after this most recent game in which he criticized Avery Williamson. I think he criticized Jordan Jenkins on a play. <coughs> Excuse me which he doesn't even know the assignment, he doesn't know the call, and uh, I mean, it's just wrong. You know, I, I guess that's, that's probably the most, uh, that's probably the, the simplified way of saying it, is that his analysis is typically wrong, he's consistently wrong. The Jets know that he's wrong, the Jets privately make fun of him because of uh, his uh, you know, quote-unquote analysis being incorrect, so, uh, you know, maybe I just wanted to share that information along and pass it along to him. Yeah, and you know, it's... Um... Unfortunately for me, I uh, don't have the ability to, to tune in and, and find out what's going on on that show. Um, I just happen to be in the U.K. where the uh, where that station, for whatever reason, is black. I, I honestly, other than when he does, you know, uh, an appearance on maybe uh, the one of the one of the network ESPN type things, I might catch some of that um, through the Internet. But, yeah, just like I said, I just wanted to g- give you a, a minute to, to give your take because – it's something that a lot of people have, have been talking about, and a lot of people have been kind of taking both sides. Um, you know, there are people, of course, who sort of have their 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 uh, they predetermine which side they're going to take in this battle. But <laughs> obviously, right, taking the time to sit back and and listen to what's being said. Um, quite a few people have come out on both sides. So um, yeah, look, Bart is loud. Bart is very good at being loud, and uh, kudos to him. Uh, Bart and I actually had a really good relationship when he was a player, for the most part, uh, maybe not toward the end necessarily, but even after he retired, uh, he and I had a pretty solid relationship. This isn't, uh, at least from my end, I can't speak on his, on his side, of course, but from my end, it's not personal. It's just that his analysis is so wrong, and it's so odd because he did play in the league and fairly recently. But, uh, you know, I don't listen to his show. I, I will say that I did listen to a part of the show driving back from the airport after the game the other night, and that's what when I heard him talking about Avery Williamson and uh, and uh, uh, Jordan Jenkins, maybe somebody else, but uh, definitely those guys when I was in the car. Uh, you know, and, you know, I ran it by some people. <laughs> I ran it by some people in the building, and, you know, they shared their thoughts on, on Bard. I don't want to really get into any more details more than what I've said. Of but course. I think, a, a, yeah, a good summary is uh, that they don't really have much respect for his analysis. All right. Well, well, moving on to the game that you just mentioned, the Jets blow a 14-0 lead in Cleveland, and, you know, fans are obviously upset, even though, as I said at the top, 
the, you know, this isn't the same Cleveland Browns teams we've seen in the past decade plus. This is actually a quality football team. Uh, however, that doesn't change the fact that Jets fans feel like this is just one more thing that this organization gets the 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 dubious distinction of having snapped Cleveland's win stretched out over a full full football season. Um, and the way they lost this game, a lot of people are coming out guns blazing uh, for Todd Bowles and the fact that he uh, took his foot off the gas, as some seem to feel. Um, how much of this loss was on Todd Bowles? And do you think it's fair at this point? I mean, let's, you know, let's face it, um, Todd Bowles, a couple five and 11 seasons, didn't have a ton of talent, but we've seen some blown leads. Is it fair to say Todd Bowles' seat is at, at the very point? Well, I think nothing has changed, frankly, uh, from when they were 0-0 and 1-0 and, and now 1-2. and uh, The Jets want to see their young nucleus improve. They want to see improvement from the Leonard Williamses of the world and Jamal Adams, uh, Marcus May, if he ever actually plays. They want to see improvement from those guys. Uh, obviously, it goes without saying, they want to see improvement as the season goes along from Sam, Dar- Sam Darnold. So, I mean, those are the barometers uh, that the, the organization is looking at, and the fact that they lost to Cleveland doesn't really change that. I think the disappointment is because of, as you said, how they lost. Not that they lost, because they were not favored to win the game. They were underdogs on the road. So I, I understand that the, the Browns struggled last year. I also understand that they had uh, two new quarterbacks, two new running backs, two new wide receivers, uh, a defensive back uh, who was the number four pick in the draft, uh, the number one pick in the draft two years ago, who was saddled with an ankle injury as a rookie. So this is, uh, and that's not even beginning to talk about their third round pick from last year, who's uh, who I think is going to be an emerging force along the defensive line. So this you know, is the Cleveland Browns, yes, but the personnel is vastly different than a year ago. So. I don't think there's any shame in losing to the Browns. I just thought it was disappointing, and I understand the fans' angst uh, in the way they lost it, uh, building a two-touchdown lead in the first half, and then slowly seeing that chip away, and then slowly seeing it chip away because of Baker Mayfield, because uh, they had a terrific game plan uh, for Tyrod Taylor, and and if they, he didn't get knocked out of the game, uh, unless uh, Hugh Jackson was going to bench Taylor, I think the Jets would have won that game. Uh, the you know, there are some concerns uh, if you look at each side first. We'll look at the defense. If you look at the defense, there was clearly some issues with the defense not being properly aligned when the Browns went hurry up with Baker Mayfield. You saw that really in Baker's first drive at the end of the first half. Uh, cornerback safeties, even defensive linemen uh, really didn't know uh, exactly where to line up. And uh, what you'll see moving forward is that Todd Bowles is going to take some of the play-calling duties back from Casey Rogers, specifically in the two-minute area, the hurry-up area. You know, I, I think that can only help. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how that fares and shakes out against Jacksonville. But, uh, you know, those are some concerns on the defensive side. The offensive side, I'm sure you do want to talk about it. So uh, there's got to be some changes, of course, on that side as well. Yeah, I, I was going to mention the Casey Rogers thing because just before we uh, logged on, I saw the, the tweet was going to be taking some of that away. And, you know, it brings me to something that I, I discussed with a few people this preseason, that the, the relationship between Casey Rogers and Todd Bowles, it seems that in Todd Bowles' first few seasons, uh, we've seen multiple instances where the offense isn't great, but they sort of exceed expectations, but yet the coordinators keep getting fired, whereas the defense has come up short a few times and Casey Rogers is still there. Is this a situation where Todd Bowles, 
looks at Casey Rogers as a friend and doesn't want to doesn't want to say. Well, look, they have a great relationship, and it, it goes back many many years. Uh, I think if you look at how the defensive play calling has evolved since Todd Bowles uh, took over in 2015, you, you get a, probably a better sense of what's happening there. It's very similar. Uh, in many respects, to what uh, a lot of defensive-minded uh, coaches do when they first take over. If you look at the Rex Ryan era, for example, his first year, he was primarily the defensive play caller. And then he handed a little bit over to Mike Pettin. Then he handed a little bit more over to Mike Pettin. And then, and then uh, it, it was a, you know, collaborative, but more Pettin than Ryan. And it's very similar in this dynamic with Casey Rogers and Todd Bowles. When Todd Bowles took over, he was calling the plays. And that's understandable it's your first head coaching job you want to really be hands-on in the area that you're strongest at but then ultimately as a head coach you do need to take that bird's eye view of everything and you do have to uh relent some of those play calling duties to people that you trust and he trusted casey rogers and look he's not taking over the play calling duties completely now he's just taking them over in certain situations i think that could benefit uh the team first and foremost but i think it also benefit Casey Rogers uh, take a little bit more off his plate. So uh, I'll be interested to see how things fare if, if there are more changes in terms of play calling responsibility moving forward. But this is, you know, the first significant step in my mind uh, in terms of a change after these first three weeks. And now in terms of the offense, Manish, um, we'll get your thoughts on Sam Darnold thus far. Um, probably had his worst game against Cleveland the other day. But one thing that jumped out at me, and I've seen people tweet about it, um, looked at the numbers earlier on, the and, you know, whether or not this is Jeremy Bates or Sam Darnold, but not really spreading the ball around much at all. Uh, Quincy Noon was seeing 30% of the targets, which I'd understand if there was no one else to catch the football. But um, despite a couple of fumbles, Robbie Anderson is still, you know, a weapon on the outside. Jermaine Curse, we saw that catch he made on Cleveland, which reminds you how good he can be. Um, they have some some really good players on this team, but is, is Sam Darnold locking in too much on Quincy Inunua, or uh, do you think they're do you think they're fine as far as that goes? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a great point. Do I think he's locked in on Inunua too much? Of course, uh, he's getting like he, as you said a third of the target share. That's that's not really sustainable. I don't think that's healthy for a team unless a third of that is going to an Antonio Brown or, or a Julio mm-hmm. Jones, you know, someone mm-hmm. of that ilk, that caliber of player. Uh, clearly. For all the good things that Quincy Enumwa does, he's not in that. He's not close to that caliber of, of wide receiver. So, yeah, there needs to be a little bit more uh, distribution to the other guys. Jermaine Curse, clearly Robbie Anderson as well. And, and I don't think there's a reason to be overly concerned with that. This is Sam Darnold's what third? What he's starting his fourth game now in his NFL mm-hmm. career. He's played three games. The third, which came on a short week, so three games in eleven days. He's a rookie quarterback. He found a comfort level in Quincy Enumo because Enumo is very good in the short and intermediate areas of the field, and that's the area uh, of the field that Sam Darnold feels most comfortable in right now. Uh, make no mistake that he has missed opportunities down the field. I've looked at the, uh, the, the coaches' mm-hmm. for the first three games, and there have been opportunities of guys being open. Uh, a lot of guys, depending on the game in, in Miami, there were a bunch of guys who were open down the field. There's a play the other night in Cleveland that not many people talk about. It was early second quarter in which Darnold rolled right. He actually had three tight ends go out on routes and uh, a clear-out route on the right by Quincy Enumwa. It was a you know, bootleg roll right, 
and he threw it to a covered Eric Tomlinson, which was almost picked off by Schobert. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, what a lot of people didn't see, because it's hard to see, uh, it's virtually impossible to see on the TV angle, but if you look at the, the All-22 Coaches film, you can see that uh, Chris Herndon is is coming behind uh, Eric Tomlinson on a deep over route, and he is wide open. And I'm talking like five to seven yards uh, on every side of him. He had like a circumference of seven yards in which there's nobody around him. And if Darnold found him, that would have been a 63-yard touchdown. I think it was first and 10 on the 37. So that would have been a, a fairly easy touchdown. He's going to see those plays moving forward. I don't know if it's going to happen in week four or week five, six, seven, but he is going to see those plays. Those plays are there. So it's always interesting to me when the conversation turns to, well, are the Jets being too conservative on offense? Well, part of that is because Darnold right now is getting accustomed to the speed of everything happening in front of him, and he feels most confident in that short to intermediate area. Uh, It is interesting that one of the great traits about Darnold is that whether he's in the pocket or whether he's flushed out or whether it's a design rollout, he keeps his eyes up. He doesn't look at the rush, but he's not looking at that deep level of the field. He's looking at the intermediate and short area, and he's getting uh, he's getting yardage off of that. There was a play against Miami. I, I think it was a, a maybe a 22-yard pickup to Quincy Anuma. It was a really good play design in which uh, Robbie Anderson was motioning right and in a full sprint, they called a pick play in which Quincy Anuma picked uh, Rashad Jones, and there was an opening there for Darnold to hit Robbie Anderson in stride for what would have been a 91-yard touchdown, I think it was. I think they were at their own 9 or 11, whatever it was. And instead, he took the, the safer uh, play, the higher percentage play, which netted 20-some-odd yards to Quincy. So, you know, you, you don't want to complain about a 20-yard gain, but at the same time, that opportunity to get a big chunk play was there, and he did not take it. And, again, I don't want to fault him for it because that was only his second game as an NFL starter. So he's going to see those things moving forward, and the Jets are dialing up plays in which that big chunk play is available. It's just a matter of him pulling the trigger. I think he's going to do that as the season goes on. You know, I don't think it's just a dink and dunk offense. I mean, that seems to be the the narrative that some people are trying to portray. And I know if you look at the results and you look at the stats, uh, you know, you could conclude that maybe that's the case. But if you actually look at the play designs that they've had in these first three weeks, they have had options for Donald to go deep, and he just hasn't taken them to this point. Yeah, all great points, and that's that's something that was someone brought up to me, and I disagree. They basically said that uh, you know we're not seeing big plays because nobody's getting open, and also you know having looked at the all twenty-two, there have been a handful of plays behind the defense. Uh, you mentioned the play to Herndon, so so opportunities have been there, and that was where I was curious if it's if it's Darnold being conservative, or if it's you know is is Robbie Anderson when he's beating someone is that his fourth option, and it's not a primary that Bates has given him, so. And as you said, one of the one of the most important things, and we knew this before the season, the three games in eleven days. You know, not not enough time, not the not the normal amount of time you would have to prep to go over these things and practice. So I think that's why moving forward, um, it's going to be interesting to see. But I mean, Jacksonville, that's a tough opponent. The Jets' O line is really going to have their hands full, and that was going to be my next question for you. Um, I'm going to go a little bit in detail on this later on, but while I have you on, I wanted to get your assessment of the offensive line that so many people said would be sort of bottom three, bottom five in the NFL. Um, how would you rate this O-line so far? Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's strange because if you look at the numbers uh, in the run game, for example, it, it 
actually looks pretty good. You've got two running backs who are averaging four and a half yards a carry. I mean, it's hard to complain when you see those numbers. Uh, but then if you watch the game, and I know that you do, Glenn, there's some you know, some breakdowns that are pretty obvious and evident and, and that are causing Sam Darnold to get flushed out of the pocket. And they, they do a lot of design rollout and move in the pocket. Uh, but there's also opportunities there where Darnold, you know, should be in the pocket, but there isn't a clean pocket. So, you know, I think the pass pro needs work. Uh, the, the run blocking in this new run blocking scheme that Rick Dennison is employing, I think will be fine. Uh, you know, they, two of the three games, I thought they did a good job. The second game against Miami, I, I thought they didn't commit to the run uh, enough in the first half. They had a three-to-one pass-to-run uh, distribution in the first half, and I don't think you should ever do that unless you're down by four touchdowns in the first quarter. So I disagreed with you know, that, that uh, you know, strategy against Miami, but clearly they ran the ball very well against the Lions. I thought they ran the ball you know, fairly well against the uh, against Cleveland. I know the, the yards per carry weren't that great. I want to say it was like 3.6, 3.7 yards a carry. But, you know, I thought they did a, you know, a decent job. I, I don't know if that's going to be a big concern. I think they'll be fine. It's just the pass protection that's a little bit disconcerting. There's been breakdowns of various areas uh, from everybody, frankly. And if you look at the Cleveland game, Spencer Long did not have a good game. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, yeah, he just didn't even watch that game. He, he did not have a good game in pass pro. Uh, he was getting consistently beat, and uh, that obviously it needs to change if uh, if they're going to have designs on uh, Darnold uh, staying healthy and staying upright. So I don't have a clear-cut answer uh, for you in terms of where I think this offensive line is going to go this year because it's not going to dramatically change the pass pro. I, you can scheme up uh, – different ways to, to protect your quarterback, and they're obviously going to have to do that against Jacksonville. And then certainly when they play Denver in, in, in a few weeks with Vaughn Miller and Chubb, they're going to have to deal with those guys as well. So whether that's you know, keeping Chris Herndon in there, using Eric Tomlinson, Blau Powell, whoever, to help out, I think that's uh, you know going to be a no-brainer moving forward to keep Darnold uh, clean and upright. Yeah, one of the big stories coming into the season, I I, I feel like they've been better than people expected um, they're far from perfect, but uh, we'll go into that in a little bit. But Manish, just want to say thank you so much for giving us time. Appreciate you joining us as always, and uh, keep up the uh, the great coverage. And you know, people, I don't know if you see it or not, Manish, but it seems people are sort of begrudgingly, uh, you know, they Manish got another scoop. You know, <laughs> um, I, I know you take a lot of heat from the fans. I've said for years that, you know, uh, in talking to people that you're a reporter and you got a job to do. And uh, for, it feels like for the last year and a half, you've been nailing a lot of stuff that no one else is getting. So um, so keep up the great work there, Manish, and we really appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And, look, I understand the fans' angst. I say this all the time. When the team's losing, they want to vent. They, you know, they want to mm-hmm. place blame on whoever and, and whenever. So uh, my job is to report what's happening, whether it's good or or not so good, but, but ultimately, and, I, and I've been consistent with uh, with this uh, really for the last year or so, and especially after they got Sam Darnold, I think they've got a lot of good pieces to be a successful team, to set a real foundation, to be a good team moving forward, and, and the biggest bugaboo had always been the quarterback, and uh, I mean, I guess I could be wrong, no one's perfect, but I think they really got the right quarterback, and if you have the right quarterback and then surround him with some, some decent pieces, they don't have to be superstars, but if you can surround Sam Darnold with some decent pieces, the Jets will be a playoff factor for many years to come. 
Couldn't agree more, Manish. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Glenn. Take care. Take care. All right, that was Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News. You heard what he had to say uh, regarding his, his feud, his Twitter feud with Bart Scott. Apparently some analysis that Manish disagreed with and says many in the team disagree with, with Bart Scott's takes. As I said, I can't say one way or the other. He's on a radio station that is not available in the UK, so I can't listen to anything Bart says. Um, but as I said, Manish has been, you know, uh, he takes a lot of heat from the fans, and he has over the years. And when he's right, people don't like to admit it, but he's, he, was, uh, he was the first one, for those of you who think back, when John Morton was fired, Manish was the first one to say that was on the horizon. Um, the Khalil Mack thing a few weeks ago, he was the one, first one to say the Jets were making calls. Then it was con- confirmed later the Jets were making calls. And he's, he just broke this story with Casey Rogers uh, having some of his play-calling duties taken away. And there have been others, none off the top of my head. I didn't compile a list before coming on the air. But I've kind of I've found it funny because it's you know Manish had the, a reputation among the fans for a long time as, as you know sensationalizing headlines and things of that nature, which I've, it's not even about Manish, and I've discussed this before on the air, and people may not realize this, a lot of editors write headlines for the writers. So when you say Manish, Samini, Costello, Christian Dyer, any of these guys who write and cover the team, when you say, oh, look, there's another clickbait headline from Rich Samini, there's another clickbait headline from Manish Mehta, rarely, at least from my understanding, from some writers I've spoken to, um, rarely do the writers write the headline. The editor's responsible for getting the clicks. The writer is responsible for writing the story. So you heard Manish's take. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up where, where I left off with Manish uh, in regards to the O-line. Um, as he said, you know, when you look at them statistically, not bad. There have been some breakdowns in protection. Keyword being some, because in my mind, every team has some breakdowns in protection. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, the biggest factor, though, that I wanted to discuss that Manish mentioned, and it's, I wanted to talk about this because I'm still here, despite the fact, despite the fact that Sam Darnold, that the Jets offensive line has only given up, I think, five sacks through the first three games. He's been sacked five times in three games. According to PFF, he was pressured three times in week one then I think 18 times in week two, and then nine times last week. Five sacks and a handful of pressures in three games and two running backs averaging four and a half yards a carry. Yet I still keep hearing Sam Donald is running for his life. Killed back there. Sam, look, every time you look up, Sam Donald is running away from pressure. I think some people are failing to realize what Manish said a minute ago is that a lot of these, I counted nine. I might've been, maybe it was 10, maybe it was eight, but a lot, a, a high percentage of Sam Darnold plays passes were design rollouts. And I honestly think people are looking up at their TV screen and they see Sam Darnold running with a five, six, seven yards behind him, which that's what happens on design rollouts, folks. You're not going to block a 300-pound man laterally from left to right on the football field. Your, your quarterback rolls out, sprints out to the right. He's going to have defenders trailing him. That's just the way it works. And I think fans are looking at those plays and saying, oh, my God, look at all this pressure he's having to run away from. But he's running because the play is designed for him to run to his left or his right. 
and he's got defenders trailing. At least, at least eight of his plays last week, it was design rollout. So right there, that's eight times that fans are looking up at their screen and think, oh, my God, he's going to get killed. Look at – he's got three defenders chasing him. But he gets rid of the ball. It's designed that way. Then you have another, I think I counted a dozen screen passes. Not screen pass, not like either receiver screen, bubble screen. Just just quick screen. The ball is out in a second. The ball snap, boom, it comes out. So that that right there, you're looking at roughly 20 plays where the ball is out too quickly for there to be any pressure or where Sam Darnold is rolling out to throw and it's not that a bunch of guys got beat and he's running away. It's that that's the play was designed that way. That's, that's 20 of his plays right there. As far as how many times against Cleveland, Sam Darnold legitimately, as they say, running for his life, as in somebody broke through the offensive line and was bearing down on him. I think I counted two or three. It was two or three that I saw. And one of them was on one of them wasn't even on the O line. It was a, a a linebacker coming from the left side who had a perfectly timed blitz on the outside. And I, I could be wrong, but I, I believe it was Eric Tomlinson that he beat. He split Brandon and I think it was Tomlinson's guy. And other than that, you had Miles Garrett, who I think most people agree is on his way to being one of the, the best defensive linemen in the NFL. Yes, Miles Garrett got through a couple times. Miles Garrett is going to get through a couple times against everybody. He's that good. So this offensive line that was supposed to be the worst in the NFL and this huge disaster has allowed their starting quarterback to be sacked five And I think, at least according to PFF, eight, nine pressures a game. And even if you want to say... Oh, screw PFF. They're a bunch of nerds. They don't know what they're talking about. Blah, blah, blah. But look at NFL Next Gen stats. Google it. Average time from snap to throw. Next Gen stats. I looked at it the other day. Sam Darnold, I want to say, was ninth in the NFL. And the amount of time he had from the time the ball was snapped to the time the ball was And people are going to say, oh, but yeah, you, Glenn, you just talked about all the quick screens. Or sorry, the, the rollouts. On a rollout, he's going to have the ball four or five seconds. Right, but then that's going to be offset a little bit by the quick screens where the ball comes out immediately. They, they damn near offset each other. So that leaves you with what's left, dropping back in the pocket. And I'm not saying that he's got a clean pocket. I'm not saying he's got a 2009-2010 Mark Sanchez pocket where he can drop back and there's nobody within four or five yards of him for three, six seconds. That's not what I'm saying. The, the, the walls are closing in a little. The linemen are getting pushed back a little bit. So, he's, yeah, he's going to have to work a little. But honestly, I like that. I'm glad. I don't want him back there getting killed. But I don't want him back there like Mark Sanchez thinking, oh, wow, this is easy. All I got to do is take the ball, drop back, and just, you know, give it six, seven, eight seconds and somebody will come open. You, you want this guy to develop and grow. You want to see him work a little bit. Make him realize that Elaine's about to close up when a D-lineman puts his hand up and pull the ball back down. Make him have to work a little. That, I have no problem with that. Yeah, you want to build the offensive line, make sure they're better next year. 
But as far as right now, and I know, yes, I know I've beaten this to death. And if you listen to the show, you're like, oh, here goes Glenn about the offensive line again. But I wanted to mention it because now we have at least a decent enough sample size. And we see what type of offense this team is running in favor of Sam Darnold starting. As much as people told me he's going to get killed, I said, look, there's going to be a ton of rollouts. That's going to keep him clean. There's going to be a ton of quick stuff. That's going to keep him clean. And they're good enough up front to do a, a decent job of pass blocking when he's, when he's trying to stay in the pocket. Again, might have to move a little, might have to shuffle a little. And that, that's exactly what it's been thus far. Now Jacksonville can get seven or eight sacks next week. But they're that kind of defense. They're going to do that to teams. They're going to make teams, they're going to make a lot of offensive lines look really bad. But if you want to say to me that this O-line, you know, doesn't deserve to be – because I looked at it earlier today. Pro football focus, Jets offensive line blocking, ranked 14th in the NFL. Jets offensive line in the NFL pass blocking. Jets offensive line run blocking, 14th in the NFL. Middle of the pack. And that's probably where they'll be when the season ends. And they're going to have some bad games. They're going to have some, like I said, Jacksonville coming up, that could be ugly. Denver coming up with Chubb and Miller, as Manish just mentioned, that could get ugly. But those are defenses that are going to have, or they're going to, they're going to make a lot of days ugly for opposing offenses. But they're not that bad, folks. They're not that bad. Spencer was terrible the other day. No doubt about it. But just from watching the first two games of the year, you know that he is the upgrade over Wesley Johnson that they so desperately needed. And then he got beat up in week three. They're going to have days. I've had people, a lot of people get pretty upset with me this offseason for saying this wasn't going to be the worst line in the NFL. And uh, not being the worst line doesn't mean you're great. It just means you're good enough. And that... that they're going to be good enough to, you know, keep the running game. That's another factor with the running game. You know, the yards per carry wasn't huge the other day, but I really think that's because, and I'm normally a proponent of this, in all honesty. So I'm being somewhat hypocritical here. But Jeremy Bates, there were a few occasions where he went with the old keep running it till they can stop it mentality. And he did. There was several times. Seven yards, eight yards, seven yards three yards, one yard, one yard. You see that average starting to dip, and then you're in third and long. But he did because the offensive line was rolling. And I I thought it was a shame. I really thought he should have taken advantage of that. These second and shorts, second and one, third and one. Air it out. Let's see some play action. The opportunities were there. They didn't take them. The targets. We talked about that, you know. That I know we went, we went over that with Manish already, but my goodness, thirty-one percent to Quincy Nunwa, and you know what it is. What really jumped out at me, if you look at it on Twitter, I tweeted out the play earlier, earlier this week. There was one play against Cleveland where they just went four wide. I want to say Quincy Nunwa was in the slot, if I'm not mistaken, and Donald drops back. There was some pressure, or you know the walls were closing in. His, his line were getting pushed back into the pocket a little bit. 
before the before the lineman even engaged with the O line, when they you know just immediately after the snap, you could see Sam Darnold. He knows where he's going with it. Before before the because someone told me oh he he made that throw because he was under pressure. If you watch when he starts to make his throw, he, he's cocking his arm to throw the ball to Quincy Nunwa before there's any pressure on him, and he throws in a double coverage. And if the DB even paying closer attention, it's likely a pick six. And as teams see that, as teams start to see, wow, one out of every three passes. And I could understand that if you didn't have any other options. But you do. Jermaine Curse. You saw, you saw the catch he made on 4th and 10. Unbelievable catch. We've seen what Robbie Anderson... And people right now saying that Robbie Anderson is garbage and Robbie Anderson needs to go and Robbie Anderson is overrated because the guy had two fumbles. Get over yourself. I mean, seriously. Week one, Robbie Anderson catches a 41-yard touchdown pass. That gave him more touchdowns of 40 yards or more than any other player in the NFL dating back to last year. He has been open deep down the field multiple times this season and not been targeted. And I hear people saying, he fumbled twice. Let's get rid of this guy. For a team that has spent how many years complaining that we have no offensive difference makers, nobody that opposing defensive coordinators have to plan for. You finally get a guy and you're trashing him because he had two fumbles. Give me a break. Terrell Pryor, some issues with effort. He acknowledged giving up on a ball against Miami that cost an interception. That can't be happening. But at the same time, he's got the second most it's early, but he's on pace for an 800-yard season. So he's got to clean it up. Carl Durrell, pull him aside, do what he's got to do, make sure the effort's there. If the effort isn't there, by all means, let him go. If they can't get him to, uh, you know, pick things up a little bit and not take things for granted and not assume the ball's not coming his way. And you got a guy who's on pace for 800. Has to be more involved, folks. Chris Herndon. That's another thing. I hear people trash, trashing Chris Herndon because he had a drop. And yeah, he didn't go out of bounds, you know, a couple weeks ago. And he, he had some boneheaded plays against Miami. Second game of his life in the NFL. And people, people say he can't catch. That's, that's the standard teams should be using. You draft the guy, he drops a pass, you cut him. That's it. Because clearly, if you drop a pass as a rookie, you're never going to catch another ball in your life. It's not Madden. You don't just draft players, dial up their catch to 99, and they catch everything that comes their way. It's real life. They're NFL players who happen to be human beings and happen to make mistakes sometimes. This instant gratification and sanity where people want players released, cut, waived, traded. But let's get rid of Robbie Anderson at two fumbles. Let's get rid of him. All he does is go out on the football field and run faster than every single guy on the field and catch long touchdowns. But let's get rid of him because he had some fumbles. And I get the offseason stuff. It was boneheaded. It was stupid, I know. But geez, a talent like that, 
and you want to let him go because he fumbled. Blow drops. I say, oh, Robbie drops everything that comes his way. Yeah, that, mu- that must be how he almost put up 1,000 yards in his second year in the NFL because he drops everything that comes his way. Can you just speak about things rationally, please? All this knee-jerk insanity. And yes, I'm guilty of it myself sometimes when it comes to uh, coaching decisions. But at the same time, the stuff with Todd Bowles that, that, that drives us crazy, the stuff that makes you want to pull your hair out, the blowing, the big lead, the lack of discipline, we're on year four of that now. So this isn't year one of Todd Bowles and people are getting upset that these things are happening. This is year four and it's still happening. So I wouldn't even call that knee-jerk. Is it knee-jerk in terms of this season? Yeah, fine. But you know what? It's year four of this stuff. Guys don't get disciplined. Guys don't get benched. They get, they get, 20, they get 20 mulligans. Steps in. I think Todd Bowles did himself no favors against Cleveland. I think it's going to take a lot for him to save his job. I mean, a couple more outings like that, and he won't be able to save his job. Blow a couple more 14 nothing leads in the second half against bad teams. Or let's again, let's let's take the bad team thing out because Cleveland could easily be three and zero against Ben Roethlisberger and the next game. But against a team that you're beating 14 nothing on the road, and you just implode zero pressure. Not a lot of good stuff there. Go over a couple of individual performances, some things that stuck out on offense, some things that stuck out on defense. We'll start. We'll start on the defensive side of the ball. Um, no surprise at all because it's really just always seems to be the case. Um, but the guy should have mentioned them earlier. Avery Williamson, what a game he had! Fantastic game. He's, he he looks like he's going to be worth every bit of what they paid him. Picked himself up a couple sacks, had a ton of tackles. Just did a really nice job at inside linebacker alongside Darren Lee, where there was maybe a, a bit of a step backward. But uh, all in all, great game for him. My guy Steve McClendon, another guy just really hard to move, but so underrated. So under, just change, change your damn name to underrated because he really is. Thought Buster Screen, you know, limited action, really. Um, but Buster Screen going out was a good thing because it gave us an opportunity to take a look at Perry Nickerson. Um, and Nickerson didn't look great. He didn't, even, he didn't look good. But let's face it, um, first pro game, and he spent, at least going off memory, he looked like he spent a lot of time covering Jarvis. One of the better receivers in the league. So you're breaking into the league, your first extended action in the game out of a small school sixth-round pick and your matchup with Jarvis Landry uh, 99 times out of 100, you're, gonna, you're not going to have a very good day. And uh, Perry Nickerson didn't. Darren Lee came back down to earth a little bit, but still continuing to have a nice, uh, a nice start to his season. And I'm, you know, as I've said before, I've been critical of Lee. Not, not quite as critical of others. A lot of people have you know, been really with him his first couple of years. And I've continually said, you know, Raw just made the move to linebacker, just made the move to the pros, give him some time. And to me, this was his big year, and he's, he's, looked, he's looked much better. You know, you can't deny it. 
Um, one thing I noticed, one thing that stood out, and I've said it on this show, I've, I've said it on Twitter, and you can call me crazy all you like, but just in terms of trying to win football games and, and put the best product out there, again, watch him off the edge. I saw him come off the edge five or six times. He, he hit the quarterback a couple times. He had a couple hurries. The guy just, when you watch him come off the edge, you think to yourself, oh, look, the Jets finally got themselves an edge rusher. Who's that? And it turns out it's Jamal Adams. I would line him up there a ton. He would be my weak side linebacker until you find one. And then you got a bunch of other guys on the roster. You got May, who hopefully will be back. You got May, you got Middleton, you got Wilcox. You got guys who can play back there. And I'd say, you know what? Until someone finds a way to get to the quarterback, at, at the very least, every third and long, every third and long, Jamal Adams would be my weak side linebacker. Put him on, or put him in the slot, have him blitz out of the slot, whatever. Just I would have Jamal Adams chasing the quarterback every time it was an obvious passing situation. Because for me, you know, for my money, he uh, he's the best linebacker on this team. <laughs> the best outside linebacker on this team. Jordan Jenkins had himself another sack, so not a not a bad effort from him. Good job on defense. You know, minus a few efforts, Morris Claiborne didn't look fantastic. He had some penalties. He allowed some big catches. Tremaine Johnson, boy, did he get lucky. First half, one-on-one with Callaway and Tyrod Taylor. Had him on a bomb. He had Johnson beat by three or four steps, and the ball just hung up there. Johnson was able to get there for Callaway, who had to wait. Johnson passed the ball away with one hand. It looks like he made a play, but in all reality, um, he owed a lot to Tyrod Taylor there. <clears throat> and Leonard Williams, as we discussed earlier, just a really, really disappointing game for him. Um, Todd Ball says he was happy with the way Leo played, but let's face it, no sacks, no hurries, nothing. Just not a single stat for Leonard Williams on the day. And that's uh, that's not a good day at the office, folks. Especially a guy with that with that rep with those expectations. Not a good day. Quincy Nunwa, another nice day. He's uh, obviously Sam Darnold's preferred guy. He's well on his way to his best pro season, and good for him. Quincy's a great story, but you know, as we said earlier, as we talked about, they need to finally get the ball spread out a little bit more. And I would imagine he's still going to be a, you know, a heck of a player. But uh, Quincy getting 33 or 31% of the targets is a little high. Um, four catch for a new one last week, 57 yards. A couple of decent runs after the catch on some receiver screens. But that's really all he was seeing. Or at least it felt that way. So not, not his best game of the year, but another game. He's kind of, he's well on track for a a good season. Of, you know, he's probably put 1,000 yards. He stays healthy, and they don't miss work. O-line, again, was, wasn't that bad? Now, yes, uh, in, the, in the middle, Spencer Long was bad. That was one of his worst games. That was his worst game of the year. But to me, Kelvin Beecham did a damn good job on the left side. Right, run blocking wasn't fantastic, but it was some of his, some of his best work. Looks like I'm, I'm going to look him up in a second here. I saw him one-on-one with Miles Garrett a few times. 
did a really nice job with him and beats him here. We say uh, PFF had him down for a 76 grade for uh, his pass blocking, 67 run blocking, which isn't off the charts, but it's for him that's a stellar day. James Carpenter did a nice job on the inside. And uh, let's face it, the biggest factor, the biggest factor in this loss to me anyway, um, was Sam Darnold, at least on the offensive side of the uh, didn't spread the ball around, missed a lot of open guys, didn't see a lot of open guys, could have easily had a couple more, a couple more interceptions than he did have. So, But look, he's, he's a 21-year-old kid playing his third game on a couple days practice or a couple days prep. You know, that was, for those of you who remember before the season started, the, one, of the, one of the only reasons I was in favor of keeping Teddy Bridgewater was I said, you know what, maybe you, maybe you let Teddy navigate weeks one, two, and three. Give it to a veteran. Hopefully Teddy plays well, and you can. You'd probably be looking to deal with San Francisco, but um, yeah, two or three days to prepare for a 21-year-old rookie on the road against a good defense run can generate pressure. Uh, this was a perfect storm, Sam Donald uh, situation for him to fail, um, which he did. But again, not the end of the world. Start number three, and then of course coming up next. Jets travel to Jacksonville. Take on the Jaguars. What a weird game. They they went out and they handled, manhandled the New England Patriots. Jacksonville did, sitting there at 2-1. and one. Beat the Pats 31-20. Scored 20 in their opener against the Giants. And then they go out against the Titans. I don't know what to think of the Titans yet. Not, a, not, not enough to go off of because new coach... Mariota's been dinged up, hasn't played all that great when he's been in there. But they go they lose nine to six. That's one of those games where that gives you a little bit of faith, a little bit of optimism, knowing that this team has a quarterback who can really just go out there on any given day and really lay an egg in Blake Bortles. Um, you see a lot of floaters out of him, doesn't have the strongest arm. But you look at the way he played late in the season last year in the, in the playoffs, and then early on this season, he, he's doing he's things better than he has previously. But then he goes out and loses 9-6. I don't know if they have putting up six points players on defense. It's exactly what they helped the, uh, the Jaguars to. So who knows? Maybe the Jets have a bit better shot in this game. And, and, and let's face it, as much as we're, we're talking about the lack of time for Sam Darnold to prep for Cleveland, you know, the, the silver lining there is that it's a better time now to prepare to take on the Jaguars. Ten days and uh, a shot for him to step up, bounce back against the top defense, against the damn – I mean, front seven – Defensive backfield, just all, all over the place. You know, playmakers on that Jaguars defense. They're, the Jaguars are basically defensively what Jets fans hoped the Jets would be when they were taking defensive linemen and just defensive players in general for about a 10 years. You know, really thought like, okay, at least, you know, we, we may not have a quarterback in place, but we're going to have an elite defense. And that just has not happened at all. Not even close. Um, they'll get to the quarterback. 
I know Kelly Campbell's got a, got a handful of sacks. Dante Fowler, not a part-time guy. A lot of people were hoping the Jets would go out and grab him. They didn't. He's playing or he's playing well for them right now. With between Fowler and Campbell and the secondary, Jalen Ramsey. I mean, he's a guy who did a lot of talking this offseason, but he looked like a he was gonna be a heck of a player last year. And he's you know, he he's probably gonna be one of the top corners in the league for a long time. DJ Hayden's another guy. AJ Bowie, another guy in that secondary who you gotta look out for. They got some players. You know, Malik Jackson up front, he does a decent job. You know, getting to the quarter, he'll get after the quarterback a little bit. He's got some, uh, he's put up some decent numbers. How much of an impact he's having. I was only able to watch one of one of Jacksonville's games in full so far. I'm going to try to watch another one this week before they, uh, before they kick off. But the Jags do have some really good pieces on defense. We saw it last week again that you know they Gabbert was hurt, Mariota's playing. Who knows how healthy he could have played a role in them only giving up nine points. But they they kept the Patriots in check the week before. And um, yeah, I know the Pats lost again to the the Lions, heartbreaking. But uh, you know a lot of people may feel like maybe that's not a big deal. Listen, until the Patriots have a an extended period where they can't score points. Um, all credit goes to the defense. It, it shuts them down at this point. If uh, if it gets to a point where they, then you rethink it. But as it stands right, right now, as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm just simply not counting the Patriots out because that's something you do. I think we've you probably we've all probably done that a time or two too many. So it's like dial that back. Expect them to hit their stride in a couple of weeks and start putting up 35 points a game. But the Jets will visit. They'll get to see their uh, their old teammate, Austin Zafarian Jenkins, who, if I'm not mistaken, is probably having another sort of six, seven yards per catch season. Start. <clears throat> Leonard Fournette. And I'll tell you what, that one matchup, even, even given the fact that Darren Lee has been playing better, that's one matchup you don't want to see. If the, if the Jaguars hit their blocks up front and they can leave Leonard Fournette with a hole to run through and only Darren Lee to stop him between him and the end zone or between him and a big play, um, I'd be a little bit worried if I were the Jets. And that's no knock on Darren Lee, to be honest. That's He's going to bowl over a lot of guys. Someone like a Darren Lee who's a little bit undersized. That could be uh, that could cause some problems, in all honesty. The Jets may have a hard time getting to the quarterback in this one. The Jaguars have some good pieces up front. Of course, they added Andrew Norwell this offseason. The guard, Brandon Linder. Is playing well at center, and they're just uh, they're a lot stronger up front than the Jets are. Even still, <clears throat> excuse me, even still, Jets have to try to find a way. Whether it's Jamal Adams, pretty off the edge. I mean, God, let's let's see some more of what we saw against Cleveland last week because Cleveland's Cleveland's O line. I don't I don't think they're that bad. I think they're better than people realize. And the Jets, I think part of the reason we saw the Jets have such a hard time getting the quarterback late is because they were just tired. They were out of gas out there. But all in all, the Jets have an opportunity. I think, you know, I, I would have said the chances of the Jets winning this game were, were nil. Uh, if you'd have asked me on Sunday morning, I would have said blowout loss. But 
you see the Titans beat them 9-6, and you remember that Blake Bortles is Blake Bortles. That Jets defense, this Jets defense hasn't been nearly as bad as people thought they would. In terms of, you know, they're not no, they're not the sack exchange, but they've they've been they've been getting some sacks. They've been getting to the quarterback more than people thought they would. They haven't given up a lot of sustained drives. A lot of the point has been on. You had the Donald pick six to start the year. Um, the interception, there have been a couple of interceptions that set the offense up where, you know, 26-yard touchdown drive, that type of stuff, 30-yard touchdown drive. Seems like there have been one or two of those. So, yeah, they ran out of gas against Cleveland. But in the long, you know, in terms of the big picture, this defense has been all right. They, put it this way, this defense has been good enough early on that you you, you can – it's not – they might go in there and give blowers a tough time. And if you can do that, maybe force one or two picks. Maybe you bring one of them back to the house for a score. And who knows? Maybe you got a shot. A little bit early in the if it, you know it, thing is it with a couple short weeks in a row, it feels like having this ten day gap between games. It feels like this Jacksonville game is a month away. But it's not. It's Sunday. I'll make a pick, and I'm, I'm going to pick the Jaguars. Um, but as I said, uh, 48 hours ago, I was uh, 100% sure that this would be a Jaguars blowout win. Now I think maybe the Jets keep it close. Maybe they put up, uh, maybe they put up a touchdown or two with the, you know, with the added time for Sam Darnold. And uh, but again, we'll, we'll say Jaguars win in a close one. I'm going to say 23-17. Uh, I'm going to say 23-13. Until, until we see more from the Jets, until they spread it out more, until we see more shots downfield, I'm going to say that their conservative offense um, has some struggles, and the Jags win. Jets fall to 1-3 and three with Denver just around the corner. I hope I'm wrong, as always. Never like picking against the Jets, and I, as always, We'll go and put some money on the Jets, even though I don't like their chances to win the game. So, kind of what I do. But that'll do it for us this week on Jet Nation Radio. We want to thank Manish Mehta of the New York Daily News for joining us. Always appreciated and always great insight from Manish. And we want to thank you for tuning in. Um, hopefully, the technical issues are us, and we are back on track up and winning with uh, – Shows that are running on time, when they should, as they should. I know tonight's was a little bit earlier than usual. Uh, had to had to make some changes to our schedule. But got it knocked out, got it done. And now it's Jets-Jaguars on Sunday. Look forward to uh, doing a bit of talking next Tuesday night. Hopefully talking about a Jets win. So we'll catch you next time. Have a great night.